Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. I'm super excited to talk to Ryan today about all things being better on stage. Advice from my friends Guy Kawasaki and Nancy Duarte and Seth Godin, all about don't suck on stage, and little nuggets about how to make yourself better. Listen, watch, and remember, people don't know what song you're playing when you're only tapping. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast, brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. All right, we are back here for another World of Speakers podcast, and we are going to jump right into it. We have Tiffany Bova, who is the force behind the sales force, and she is fierce. She is someone who I met in Hong Kong, and now we're talking again here today. She's from a tiny, well, I, I guess an island. You're from one of the islands of Hawaii, but uh, how are you doing today? Are you feeling, are you on an island somewhere in the world? Where are you? I'm in Los Angeles today, but you know, I still call Hawaii home. Okay. And what, are you on the big island or? Oahu, actually, born and raised. Okay. Spent you know most of my life there and went to college in the mainland and then went back and spent my 20s there. And then I moved to back to the mainland, if you will. Uh, when I turned 30. Very cool. And uh, you've got LA as a station point, but then Hawaii is your home and you travel all around the world. So it's almost like the world is your stage, right? Uh, I would ha- I would have to agree with that. People go, you know, where, where do you live? I said, well, my home airport is LAX, but my home is in Hawaii. Very cool. And did you always know that you'd end up where you're at? Or was this a series of events that sort of built on each other and organically ended up where you are? Did you, as a little kid, when your mom said, Tiffany, what do you want to do when you grow up? You're like, I want to spread the news of Salesforce. Oh, most definitely not. I, you know, (laughs) I I think, well, it's kind of even more interesting than that. I think, you know, when I went home after college, um, well, uh, if I back up, you know, I, I sort of joke that everything I learned about business, I learned in the carnivals because I worked for a friend, friend of mine's family who ran the outdoor arcades and carnivals in Hawaii. And from the age of probably 15 to 21 or 22, I got the best lessons in life really and in business was running outdoor games and indoor arcades because it's just, it's all about this nonstop customer experience. I had to learn, you know, ordering teddy bears and supply and demand and how to get people to come and play the game. And it was hiring and scheduling and firing and, you know, being on an island, you know, teddy bears delayed in a you know, on a container that's coming in a boat, what do you do at right. Carnival's Friday? I mean, you know, so all the things, right? So, you know, I don't know what my mom thought I was going to do, but then I decided that I wanted to get into sales. And so, you know, that conversation is always interesting. So mom, you know, I've, you've spent all this money on my education and I think I want to <laughs> be a salesperson. And she's just kind of like, yeah, as long as you can pay your bills and move out of the house. Like, I, I, don't, know, I don't care what you do. Well, I'm curious, what did you study in college? Well, uh, yeah, that's another good one. So I went with a business undergrad uh, at Arizona State, and that's not what I ended up with. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, my college counselor pulled me in probably at the end of my freshman year and said, I don't really think business is for you. And I love that story, right? Because I think, number one, I was never a student in that way. And I didn't learn that way. I learned by doing and, you know, going back to my what I just said, you know, around working at the carnivals. Um, and I'm also a listen and visual learner, not a read learner. And so school was always really tough for me. I wasn't a great student. So 
I was like, fine, that's fine. You know, I have to, I have to get a degree. And so I went on with uh, public programs and, and I got a degree in criminal justice and pre-law, which, you know, talk about not really wanting to read, but I liked <laughs> the concept of it, if you will, thinking I was going to go into law school, but that didn't happen for all kinds of reasons. But I graduated with that and kind of went back to Hawaii and went back to work at the carnivals and then found myself sort of stumbled into selling and marketing and working for small little companies and, and then I, you know, found my way to larger companies. And then that's what eventually moved me to the mainland. I couldn't, I couldn't sort of sustain that kind of selling. And I stumbled into technology, which was really not something that you would do in Hawaii necessarily. So I came to the mainland and started selling technology. And that was sort of the beginning of what got me here. That's a very indirect path. And I think that people can associate with that and they can resonate with that because sometimes it takes a, I guess it, I'm thinking games, I'm thinking Price is Right, and I'm thinking Plunko, right? <laughs> uh, are you familiar with Plunko? I am, I am. Okay, right? So we all start off here, it's like ding, 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 and you have all these options, all these things that you're capable of. But I think sales is one of, it's like the Jedi Knight form of the modern day force. Like it's just, if you think about it, really we sell everything from what we want to go watch from a movie perspective to selling what we want for dinner. And I think that claiming that as an owning that in all aspects of life sort of takes the pejorative term from it, right? Don't sell me or I don't want to be sold. It really, you're, you're always convincing people to do something. And if you have a say in that, then there's some sort of value, right? I agree. I mean, you know, to, to steal Dan Pink's terms, right? To sell as human. And what's interesting is, is here at Salesforce, we've just created a documentary on the history of sales. It's really fascinating, right? It's wow. kind of trying to, yeah, trying to take the four letter word out of sales. It's just kind of the history of it and how it all sort of started. And, and to your point, Ryan, right? It's every within everything we do. You know, you want your kids to take out the trash. You know, you're trying to get, you know, someone to do something extra, getting your car fixed or, you know, we're always constantly selling and not in a bad way, right? right. But it's much more about persuasion, I'd say, than selling, but within the skill of sales, it's all kinds of things. You have to be a great communicator, a great storyteller. You have to be a good listener. You have to be able to get the customer or the prospect to understand what it is that you can actually do and the value that you add. And it requires you to have all kinds of very broad skills. It isn't a single skill. Uh, and so I think people overlook the power of people who are really successful in sales are good at a lot of things. So it kind of goes against the the jack of all trades as the master of none. Or, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, what? Well, very true. But I'd also say that, you know, along those lines, that, that kind of going back to your example of the Plenko, right? It's bouncing all over the place. And you have to learn along the way sort of what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. Or as a friend of mine likes to say, non-strengths instead of weakness. <laughs> I, kind of, I like that. That's a good repositioning, right? Yeah, I stole it from her. You could steal it from me. <laughs> but uh you know, at the end of the day, I found my strengths and I doubled down on those strengths. And it's what's moved me along in my career and ultimately got me to this place here now with, with Salesforce. Now, not everybody associates speaking with sales, although I think a lot of people do. In your path, how was speaking and taking the stage and that type of persuasion one on many, how was that integrated into your, your growth and your learning and your success? Well, I had a fairly successful career running sales, marketing, and customer service organizations for both startups and sort of Fortune 500 companies. And my early days, you know, sort of 99 to 2002, 
or three, I was a Loquas beta client. You know, I was constant contacts beta client. I was selling what we called back then web hosting. And we were the largest web hosting company in the US and one of the large dom- largest domain registrars. And we were really, really early in quote unquote selling via chat and a lot of the technology that's become so pervasive today. Hmm. And it was a great, interesting point in my career because I got to get really on this sort of bleeding edge path and coming from sort of on, you know, standard traditional technology. And then I landed at Gateway Computers, right, as the stores were closing and it merged with e-machines. And so I was running a division there. And then I realized that I, I was getting a little tired. Like it had been a good 15 years that I'd been working really hard and sales is, you know, unforgiving. You have a great quarter, you know, it's, things are good. You don't have a good quarter, it gets tough. And I got an opportunity to work at Gartner, hmm. which is one of the largest analyst firms in the technology space anyway, and consulting firms in the world. And I went there as a research analyst, which was a big pivot for me to go from running sales to now being sort of an academic analyst advisor, if you will, to other sales and marketing leaders and some of the largest tech companies in the world. And that's what started that pivot. You know, at that time, it's like I'd had all this experience and then Gartner allowed me to apply that experience. And through that Uh, I was there literally a decade. I I ended that career as a research fellow and distinguished analyst. And so over the 10 years, it really helped me step into this speaking role, if you will, because obviously it's a lot, for those of you who know Gartner, right? It's a lot of what what they do around their own events. But I, I probably at my last clip was probably doing anywhere from 35 to 50 keynotes a year somewhere in the world for a good 10 years. Right. That's solid. That's a, solid, that's a right. lot of, uh, you're going to run out of bedposts. And, and my day job. <laughs> right. On top of it all. What's crazy. Yeah. And so for, you know, from there, that was really how I sort of made that transition, right? It wasn't, I was a sales leader, you know, and then decided to start speaking. It was, I sort of landed on that academic side and, and I really kind of found my voice around some thinking that was considered leading in the categories I was talking about. And that's really what spawned it for me. And then did you make the jump to Salesforce or did they come hunting after you? How was that transition? Yeah, it's interesting because people go, ah, you know, you went to the dark side. I'm like, well, I don't know which one is which, right? Because I came came from a technology vendor side. Then I went to Gartner. Now I'm back to a tech vendor side. And so I just look at it as, you know, part of my journey. Because I'd been there 10 years and I'd reached research fellow, sort of the the height of what what you can do there. It was, I had sort of, it was a fork in the road. It was, if I was going to go down my fellow's program, I had a two-year commitment to investing in a research project that would come out the other end as, as some foundational piece that, that Gartner would use, or I was going to go, right? But I didn't want to start that without staying through the full two years. So it was really one of those, okay, what do I want to be when I grow up kind of thing? What do I want to do next? Right. And I had really found a love for this, you know, speaking and really sharing a lot of the things that I'd learned along the way. And it was great that I was able to command the rates that I was able to command. A lot of it had to do with the fact I had Gartner on my business card, of course, but people were beginning to book me individually. And so if, you know, through Gartner, obviously, but, you know, they say we want Tiffany Bova, not we want Gartner, who will Gartner give us to speak, right? right so there's a little yeah. bit of a difference there. Yeah. The inbound request. And, and that's, now, would you consider that your personal brand being established, even though you're at a company level and whatnot, did you, were you able to, to stand out as an individual? It sounds like that's what kind of happened, right? Yeah. And that's a great question. 
because I, I'm doing a panel in a couple of weeks, uh, actually getting interviewed on a fireside chat about this very question, you know, sort of building a brand, a corporate brand, like helping marketers figure that out. But then how do you build a personal brand within a very large corporate brand? Right. Yeah. How do you do that? And what's the balance between the two? And it was a balance. And, you know, I always, first and foremost, had Gartner on my card, right? That is where I worked. And I was fortunate enough to build a reputation around, as I was saying, sort of an area of coverage. It was sales transformation. It was digital disruption. It was customer experience. You know, it was what are the things that companies need to focus on to drive growth? And so I was speaking around that topic. And so and learning along the way, obviously, because I had a thousand research analysts behind me, you know, similar to me that were pumping out predictive, very thought leadership kinds of content, which I could then use, which was a, an amazing position to be in. I could, you know, sort of encapsulate the big nuggets, if you will, and then say, how can I share those nuggets with the sort of the storyboard of what would it mean to the person in the audience? So not just regurgitate the stats, but what's the impact? What does it mean? And I got really good over time doing that. So I'd say, yes, I was able to raise my personal brand awareness through that, but I never made the mistake to think my brand was bigger than who I was working for. You know what I mean? Right. So yeah. I, it was sort of a balance of the two. And I think people have a struggle with that. It's a real struggle because you you have your day job and you're excited and what you you can leverage that halo, right? Because this is usually a big company, say, that you're working at, or at least bigger than your startup that nobody knows. But the fine line, and the, I like your your concept of a balance, right? You have to sort of pay homage to where you're at now, but not miss the opportunity to take advantage of the time, effort, brain damage that will eventually sow the seeds for an individual career outside of that. And hence why I decided to move. Right. So that's exactly the reason. And I wasn't, you know, listen... I think you can get caught sometimes drinking your own Kool-Aid, right? In the sense that you go, oh, it's all about me. Right. <laughs> and thankfully, I, I did not have that problem. I knew that it was because I had Gartner on my card. I mean, you know, the the rate that they would charge for my, you know, my day rate uh, domestically and my day rate internationally it was nothing to shake a stick at. And doing, you know, 35 or 50 a year, so, you know, it was very good money for them. But I knew that if I left and I said, oh, I'm going to go work for Tiffany Bova's consulting shop and hung up my shingle and said, okay, and here's my rate. It's the same as what it was when I was with Gardner. I knew that would not work. Right, right. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. I knew there were a couple of things that needed to happen prior to that happening. And so Salesforce created a, an opportunity to me, for me to be the global growth and innovation evangelist, which in many ways is just out evangelizing very similar talk tracks to what I did historically, but now I'm doing it with a very big brand, obviously, especially in this particular category that my talk track falls into. And so I get to do it for our customers at their sales kickoffs or at their executive meetings or their summits. And then, you know, industry events, not so much representing Salesforce because I don't, my talk track is not about us in that way. It's much more of we do our own research and sort of what am I hearing and seeing from our customers? Like when we saw each other at the Rise Conference, it was really about how is customer experience the new battleground? And of course, in the bottom has the Salesforce logo of my PowerPoint slides, but I wasn't up there talking about the technology and our services. Right. And that's that kind of goes to show the power of the personal brand in an element to where people still want to connect with the person on stage. That's why it's called a personal brand, right? But you're still haloing in this larger brand. So I, 
again, I, just like nobody wants to buy your book, they want to learn who you are and be inspired. And then the book is a product of if they like you enough in the first place, right? It's kind of a Absolutely. chicken in the egg. And, and the Rise Conference is a great example. Because of what I had done for the decade at, at Gartner, I, I was pretty good at making sure I made it in region into APAC somewhere two or three times a year. And then Europe probably got me you know, five, five or six times a year. And then obviously North America gets me a lot. But I had not been in region for almost a year since I'd taken the job, since I'd left Gartner. And so the fact that the RISE conference came to me and said, hey, you know, we, we've seen you. We know that you're great. We'd love for you to come in and do this. It says a lot about even though it had been a year, right, they wanted me to, to come in and do that. And so that goes back to, you know, if you, if you uh, work really hard and find a niche that you can uh, shine in, that people will remember that. Yeah, Okay, well, this is not, what a fascinating story. I, I'm feeling like it's a what is a game that you were in charge of that's Plunko like that is a representation of your life of the games when you were back in the day, you know, cutting your teeth, learning sales, and just uh, you know the customer experience. What was a game that you think is representative of sort of all that together? Is it the throwing the balls at the clowns that come down? Is it is it a dart game? Go back in time. What do you think? I don't know. Maybe ski ball because I think <laughs> if you if you think about ski ball, right, you get these ball and you just take a toss and it's yeah. going to land in the middle or the outside ring or the outside ring and you don't always get the hundred points. Right, it might be ten points or twenty points. You know, it's just like <laughs> it's just like money ball, right? As long as you got people getting on bases, I love that. You don't always need a home run hitter, right? And, and so you got to throw it down the line and, and it, you hit the ramp and depending on the speed at which you hit the ramp, it can totally. Uh, take you one way or the other. And sometimes I get aggressive and want to throw it as hard as I can so it can hit the top and then bounce back, right? <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, you can get that hundred banking off the side, straight up the middle. Right. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to get the hundred. But I think what was what's key in that is that you don't always need to get the hundred because if, if you're competing against someone that gets the hundred one time and you're able to get the 20 and 30 every time in the 10 tosses, you're going to win. So, you know, I think it's just a matter of, you know, always trying to get something out of whatever it, you do, not always trying to go for the home run. Yeah, I, I I heard myself say something the other day, and I think you were aware I do these stick figure drawings every day. So I like think in terms of quotes sometimes. And I said something the other day at a workshop saying, it's not about being groundbreaking. It's about breaking ground every day. Throw the ski ball. Hey, so we, I want to transition now into a little bit more of some of the magic behind what you've learned. And, you know, I'll, I'm on Twitter a lot at Ryan Foland, and I'll ask people questions that they want me to ask, you know, speakers from around the world. And one that I think would be great to ask you is the concept of what is the specific process that, you know, when you create a new talk? Because I think you have so much experience, so much to pull from. It's probably difficult because you have so much to pull from, but what is it? Do you have a specific process that you go through to put together a talk? And could you talk us through that? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things. One, I'll start by saying that what was always difficult when I was in my previous role at Gartner is that, you know, let's just say I did, you know, because I spoke at particular conferences in the tech world, just because of who, you know, I worked for, if you will. And so I might do 10 or 12 tech conferences in the course of the year. And the challenge is, is that the audience is going to have some same people in, you know, mm, right. And so you don't want them going, I've seen her, right. I've seen her and they don't show up. 
so not only is it, you know, kind of an annual, let me refresh, sort of throw everything out and start again, right? So that, it, you know, the annual, in case they see me next year, you want, it, this could be, they're seeing me three months from now or four months from now. Right. So that, that's really tricky when you, you know, find a niche and you're in a segment that people may see you multiple times in a year because you speak at, at multiple conferences they're attending then you always have to be mindful of keeping it fresh. And so keeping it fresh could be the stories you tell, keeping it fresh could be the order of the slides, keeping it fresh could be the style of the slides, meaning you could do more TED Talk than it being more statistical, if you will, right? That sort of much drier kind of content. And so even those little things, because, you know, even the best, you know, they're not going to remember everything you said and everything you did. You just want them to feel that they got something new out of hearing you again. So that's tricky, and I probably, because I did such a volume in a very specific category, it was challenging. And so even over the course of the year, you have to be mindful of that. But if I have an annual flip, you know, I, I am a huge consumer of content in the topics that are of interest to me. So I'm always looking for what's the angle. And I've gotten pretty good at, I like to say, sort of all these data points are kind of stars on the wall. And I'm able to make the Big Dipper out of those stars. And so the Big Dipper may change shapes a little bit, but I'm always looking for what's next in the areas I, I talk about. And so I'd say my preparation is just being a consummate student of what I do for a living. And my, you know, what I do for a living is, in many ways, is try to tell stories to inspire people to think differently about the way they use technology in order to engage with, with their customers and, and how to really create memorable experiences. So I have to do that on stage as well. So I think just being a consummate student of the content and then finding your voice, you know, the way in which you tell stories. And so I have, so I have some thoughts as well as people are sort of coming up to find their, their voice on stage that I did. And sometimes I still do, but I used to do it for sure for a good seven or eight years consistently. And would you be willing to share some of that voice searching technology that you've worked through? Yeah. So I, I'd say this. One, I would find someone who has moved you. It doesn't matter on what topic. Okay. And by voice. And it, by video as well would be even better, right? But let's let's say you have a video recording, you know, with voice of somebody who really moved you from a speaking perspective, once again, regardless of the topic. Sure. And so I want you to do two things. One is I want you to listen to the video without watching the video. Ooh. And all I'm looking for good. you to do is listen to pace, pause, inflection in their voice. I'm really going to tell you this. I'm going to tell it to you fast. And this is what I mean. Like, how are they moving through the content? from a voice perspective. Yeah. And not watching them, right? Like that's, that's a, not watching them. No, 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 no. You can't watch them. Right. I only want you to go stand in another room or, you know, minimize the video. So you're only listening to the voice. Then I want you to watch the video and not listen to the voice. And when you're watching the video, that is a very different thing. Are they pacing on the stage? Are they really fidgety with their hands? Are they adjusting their glasses all the time, touching their hair? you know, fixing their tie, their shirt, they put their hands in their pocket, you know, are, are they just really fidgety or are they just smooth like butter, right? Like they're just, right, right. they're just sort of moving through it. So two things, right? 
I want you to listen and not watch, watch, not listen. This is good. From that, from that, you're going to find ways that you will start to realize, wow, I always put my hands in my pocket and I think it looks terrible, you know, or if I, I'm constantly touching my hair or the, you know, the dreadful ums, right? The stalls and the stutters and what it is that you're saying. So I did that and I would always get a recording of my presentations. So I would do the same thing with myself. So I would watch, not listen, listen, not watch. And so over the first, like I I have film of the, you know, one of my first presentations some 12 or 13 years ago where I got quote unquote paid to speak. Okay. And it was just, uh, you know, when I watch it now, I go, oh God, you know, now, and I thought I was great. You know, I thought, oh, I went up there and I was authoritative and I told the story and I, you know, you know I, I sounded like I knew what I was talking about. And you crushed it. You crushed I it. I crushed like, yeah. it, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I didn't. But <laughs> I had to learn. And so this little tip, no one told me, I just sort of came up with it because there were people who I enjoyed listening to speaking and I enjoyed watching speak. And so I just said, well, you know, I want to learn from them. Now, the caveat here, a huge asterisk next to this is I do not want you to try to be them or mimic them. I want you to see what it is you don't like or potentially things you do that, you, you know, you're all you're trying to look for is things that you felt really worked. And could you authentically apply it to you on stage when you're speaking? Because the moment you try to be somebody else, that's, a, you know, sort of a bad combination because it comes off as being really inauthentic and that's worse than being terrible. <laughs> it's just right. But this whole uh, listen without watching and then watching without listening, this is really a training exercise for you to start to identify these things, like breaking, breaking them down into their core elements so that you can recognize them in yourself as well. Yes. Now I was probably year five into my Gartner speaking for fee career. And I had a presentation and I, and, you know, I have this, I have this picture of me where I was speaking at this event many years ago and I'm standing in this group of people and my shoulders are a little rolled forward and my, kind of my chin is down and my eyes are up and I'm, and I'm looking very passive. And it's funny, people who know me now, they're like, yeah, whatever, they don't believe it. But yes. I've got that whole body language on right now. You just described it and I'm like, my shoulders and this and like, so I'm physically, I got that, yeah. Got, right? <laughs> Yeah, and then I and I whenever I'm giving a presentation about this topic, I, I have something I call I give a speech called the building your confidence muscle, and this is this whole speech that I'm sort of sharing with you now. Where then I show this picture of me getting on the main stage in the round at the Verizon Center in front of fifteen thousand people, uh, in front of Satya Nadella, who is the CEO of Microsoft, and so I was his opening act, and I had you know. I don't know, 12 or 15 minutes in front of these people, you know, and literally in the round, it was like, it was, it was the largest audience I'd ever done. Talk about being intimidated on all kinds of levels. Yeah. And it was his first event uh, in his new role anyway. So I show the picture of me with my shoulders rolled. And then I show me walking on stage, my arms are open, you know, my shoulders are back. My head is held high. I got a big smile on my face. Like I am on this stage and I'm going to own it for 12 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And so I obviously I have the recording and I do what I said I do, right? I watch it and listen and listen and don't watch. And even even when you sort of do that, I still think that, like I said, you need to be a student. So I decided to send the video to Nancy Duarte, if you know who Nancy is. Uh, mm-hmm. 
I don't know her personally. She wrote the book Illuminate. Yeah, I, didn't, I don't know her personally, but you know, maybe you can intro later on in life. So, okay, so yeah, I. So, Nancy, right? And she's written the book Illuminate, and she's all about storytelling, and her TED Talk is, you know, viewed by a million three people, and, you know, blah, blah, right. So, she's, she's the bomb. So, I said, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to send this to Nancy and say, tell me what you think. Now, you know, you just sort of start sweating as you hit send, boom, send. Like, you know, there's no taking it back, right? <laughs> right. Well, wait, have you ever used MailChimp? I, I have, but it wasn't MailChimp. Okay. So. No, but what I'm saying is that there's a little sweaty monkey finger, oh. like before you have to hit send and it like wiggles and it sweats when you have to make that final decision. Yes. Okay. And I just hit send. Right. And, okay. you know, the rating from the presentation was good. You know, I, I'd been asked by, you know, they were one of my largest clients at the time. You know, I mean, they were, they were really good to me. So I said, well, I'm sure it's okay. So I send it to her. And I get back this feedback. Now, when I was watching, listening, listening, watching my presentation, before I sent it to her, I noticed something. And I said, huh, I wonder if she'll notice it. Sure enough, she did, because obviously it's what she does for a living. Right. She comes back and she goes, yeah, you know, the first like four minutes of that presentation doesn't seem like it was you. And then they're like, then all of a sudden you showed up at about minute four. Hmm. And I said, funny you'd say that. I had 12 minutes and she was right. She was spot on right. So I had 12 minutes and the first couple of minutes I had to get through very specific content because I was setting up the CEO who was obviously coming behind me, right? So I was giving sort of, you know, facts and figures and stats and, you know, this is what's going on. And, you know, it was very, you know, it was very Gartner-esque, right? So I was delivering the high level content in the first four minutes. And the second I, or three, three and a half minutes, the second I finished that last period, I showed up. Right. Because then I started walking on the stage. I was telling jokes. I was smiling. I was, you know, well, wait a minute. No, actually, let me say it this way. You know, I, I was very natural on stage where she noticed the shift. And so I'm going, the reason I'm giving this story is because I'm going back to not being your authentic self. I was trying to be something I am not on stage. And even if you didn't know me, which, you know, at the time, Nancy didn't know me very well, she caught it right away, which meant, so that means that the audience probably caught it as well. Exactly. Yeah. So now I've, I just don't ever do that. So if someone says, Hey, listen, we need you to get through this content. Like we need you to, you know, we sort of try to shape it a little bit. I don't mind if they shape it, but I do not let them sort of give me specific guidance on how I can, how they'd like something positioned or presented because it gets me out of my groove and I don't do well there. And so going back to, you know, learning what works for you and what goes on for you. And, and that little thing that I did with Nancy, right, that she has never forgotten that she's like, look, you know, you're doing, <laughs> you've done 300 keynotes and you're asking me for advice, right? And you're, you're billing out 30,000, 50,000 for an hour. Like, you know, what am I going to tell you? But she told me some great feedback and it's carried with me and I never forget it. You know, I just had her on my podcast and we had this whole conversation again about, you know, what it's like. And so I'd say that you have to just really become a student of what you do and always open to hearing how you can make it better because you are not perceiving yourself on stage, you know, and that's why watching yourself is a great way to get a handle on the reality of what's going on. What to me is so incredible about that story and that piece of advice is a bit counterintuitive to maybe people who are searching for the golden nuggets of speaking. This idea of being yourself, not being someone else, 
is something that everyone can do without downloading a course, without taking a, a certain program, right? Like that's the one thing that you own is yourself. And sometimes I think we get caught up on all these tactics, right? Make eye contact, do this, do this, do this. And you become maybe by the book, you're doing the right moves, but you're disconnecting from the audience because it's not you. I think that's it's so powerful because everybody is themselves, but maybe letting them be empowered to really put that forward on stage is something that everybody can do. Yeah. And I, it, so I, I want to make sure though, because I agree with you that you have to know the basics, you know, and so taking a class or reading a book or listening to podcasts like this or other things, I think is highly important as well Yes, because you need to know the basics and, and that's the stuff you can practice, 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 practice. When you find what resonates and when people really respond, because Ryan, I'm sure you have had this happen to you, and I know I have. When I'm on stage, you know, you can you can fall flat and you can feel it from the audience. And you might fall flat with the right side of the stage and the left side's totally engaged. I mean, right. it doesn't mean the whole room, right? Half of them like yeah. you, half of them don't. Or the guy in the front row is like looking at his phone and the guy in the third row is reading the paper. You're like, God, you know, I'm up here. I'm up here giving it all I've got. And you, you know, you could at least, you know, pay attention. So, you know, at the end of the day, you have to be able to read the cues from the audience and adjust on the fly. And that just takes practice. And another great piece of advice I got was from Guy Kawasaki, whom I'm sure you know as well. And uh, we went to rival high schools. He is also from Hawaii. He's a little older than me, though. I'm going to point that out. So good, good, uh, yeah. yeah. And so no, no uh, taken. <laughs> so he had a migraine. And he was supposed to be up at like eight and I was up at like 10. And so he calls me in the morning. He's like, Tiff, I need you to jump in for me at eight and I'll take your 10 slot. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to get on stage at eight and they're going to go, you don't look like guy. Right. And, so, <laughs> and I said, oh, that's okay. You know, I'll, I'll work it out. You know, so, so I did that for him and it was not three weeks later, we were together at another event. So the first one was in San Diego. The second one was in uh, DC. And so this was, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And he's up now before me. Now I'm following him. And so he's walking down the steps and I'm walking up the steps and he goes, you know, Hey, Bova, don't suck. <laughs> I'm like, really guy? Thanks. Thanks, man. <laughs> so, you know, I get on stage and I said, just so everybody knows, there's maybe only a couple hundred people in the audience. I go, just so everybody knows, you know, guy's piece of advice as he was leaving was, Hey, Bova, don't suck. And everyone started laughing. <laughs> right. And so People ask often, like, what is it that you do before you get on stage now? And I say, I hear Guy Kawasaki in the back of my head saying, hey, Bova, don't suck. <laughs> <laughs> right. You almost need that, that heckler just to sort of snap you into it, right? Yeah. And he just meant it like, you know, and it's funny because when I say that to people, they're like, oh, my God. You know, they, they thought he was serious. And then I have to back up and go, no, 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 no. You know, like we play because we went to rival high schools and in Hawaii, you know, people don't actually ask, where do you live or what car do you drive or what job do you have? They ask, where'd you go to high school? So, hmm. you know, it tells everything about a person. And so we, you know, we have fun with, uh, with that when we get a chance to speak at events together. Yeah. And so just having that awareness, uh, is great. There's a Toastmasters club that's around here and their, their motto is don't screw it up. So like it's a fun and they're just bringing awareness to it. And you know, they'll shout when somebody's up like, don't screw it up. Or like that's their motto. But yeah, I think an element of that is also sort of having fun and not taking yourself too seriously. And I think Guy is a great example of that as well, because he is definitely himself up on stage, but this idea of including humor and not taking yourself too seriously, I think helps you to not suck, right? 
Yeah. And, I, and I'd say this, listen, like, as I was just saying, and sometimes you fall flat and some days are just better than others. And you can do it within a speech, you know, within a presentation. Like, let's say it's a 45-minute presentation. You know, the first 10 minutes, you might be on fire. And then the next 10 minutes, you just, you're not doing so great. And then you got to recover. And because, you know, they're, they're there to hear you. And so even if you feel like it's not going well, you have to be able to recover really quickly. And that's why if you're not authentically yourself, when you try to recover, yourself will show up. And it becomes really jerky in its delivery, right? You're sort of, you're funny and you're joking and then you're serious and you're funny, you know? So that's why if you're just yourself the whole time, it doesn't feel like there's two people on stage. And so, you know, even if you go, you know what, let me try that again. Like, you know, I think it's really this, like, they're going to feel like, you know what, like, hey, you know, maybe she's struggling a little bit up there or whatever the case might be, like, you know, give her a hand or, you know, just say, you know, tell a joke or say something that, you know sort of breaks the mood for a second to get people to maybe repay attention. You have to, even in a, even in a given presentation, you can be, you know, knocking it out of the park and then falling flat. And like I said, either by people or in the whole room, and it could be all kinds of reasons why that happens, but you just have to make sure that at the end that you have given it everything that you've got and you did the best you could do in that day and people will know it. Yeah. You know, this reminds me, Keith Rousey talks about this a lot as well where sometimes he gets so excited about what he's talking about, either he delivers it too quickly or he feels like it just maybe didn't resonate with the audience because he knows it way better than they do. And he'll he'll stop and go like, whoa, stop. Okay, I got excited there. Let's back up for a moment because that idea of there's one thing to just like present your message on stage and the other is really being responsible for the audience understanding what you're saying. And that whole idea of reading the audience and and that active feedback throughout the whole process is is key, especially that the large crowd, uh, and sort of the big time. And that's why if you listen to yourself, you'll know you've sped up. Yeah. You'll notice that when you get excited, you start speaking faster. So you become very conscious of, I can very guilty of that. I just talk fast anyway. And so if I'm on stage and the adrenaline's going and it's 15,000 people, it's even worse, right? So you really have to pace yourself. A trick that I learned, and and I'm not going to claim that this one's for me, but you know, in, in the book made to stick, uh, they gave a great analogy on if you and I were sitting across from each other, you know, and and, uh, we were having lunch or something. And I said, Hey, I'm going to tap a song on the table. And if you guess it, here's a hundred dollar bill. And I tap a song. Well, you know, as long as it's not happy birthday, because everyone defaults to that, but let's say (laughs) besides happy birthday. And I say, if you guess the song, I'll give you the hundred bucks. So I start tapping. And then you look at me like, I have no idea what it is you're tapping, Tiffany. Like, I have no clue. And to me, I'm looking at you going, what an idiot. Of course, it was Jingle Bells. Right. It was Jingle Bells. <laughs> like, did you not hear Jingle Bells? Like, right. Because I am humming it and singing it and tapping it. Right. You are only hearing the tapping. And so that's what happens on stage is that we, in our minds, as we're on stage and we're speaking, we are humming, tapping, and singing. And all the audience hears is tapping. And so that goes back to what you were just saying, where it makes all the sense in the world to us because we hear jingle bells, right? but the audience only hears the tapping. So you have to be, I don't care where you are. And going back to the persuasion where we started this conversation, you know, a few minutes back is it's about persuasion. And the way to persuade is to give that full context of what is so obvious to you in a way that's engaging and interesting to whom you're delivering the story And then at the end, they're able to make their own decision of whether that content was valuable or not. 
And I don't mean dragging out the story by giving every permutation, but remember, how can they hear the tapping, the humming, and the singing? And it was that I used this example. I read that book, I don't know, four or five years ago. And I use it with everybody when they say to me, look, I'm really struggling in how to communicate this with someone, just even in a meeting or, you know, personally, I tell this story and they look at me and they go, so great, right? Because to me, and then you start talking faster and then you start telling them all these other things. And it means, you know, just take a pause and realize that they're not hearing (laughs) what's going on in your head. And also they don't know, like you were just saying, like the 10 years of everything I know from working at Gartner. Yes. You know, and now the two years of being here at Salesforce. So I think that's a good opportunity for a hashtag, hashtag finger tap. So my challenge to all of my listeners, and I do this at least once a show, if you've had a finger tap moment where you've completely been irresponsible in delivering a message because you're so comfortable and caught up with the message that you're delivering, tweet out to Tiffany and myself and use the hashtag, hashtag finger tap. And then like either a picture or you can say, this just happened. Why not throw it out there? And we'll see, we'll see if that works. Yeah. And my, my, uh, my Twitter is uh, at Tiffany underscore Bova and it's Tiffany with an I at the end because, you know, I didn't want to copy the jewelry store. So (laughs) (laughs) I love that. There's your personal brand as well. Well, let's touch a little bit. Now, I know you're not speaking now charging money because your Salesforce, you know, that's a whole different gig. You were before, but what's the brass tacks when it comes to, you know, your advice for people who are trying to make that transition in their own life or in their career to get to a spot where they can charge to speak? Anything that stands out that you wish to throw out there into the world of speakers? Yeah, I'm going to steal this from Seth Godin. So Seth told me, (laughs) he said, Listen, you know, because I ask him, what's the advice you give people who want to be marketers, right? Just speaking about that. Yeah. And, and he says, look, you know, I, I remember when I was a kid, I wanted to be a marketer and, you know, not like everybody was going to let me be a marketer. So I decided to go market for, you know, my high school newspaper and for like the local store. And, you know, so I would say to you, if you want to become a speaker, start speaking and forget <laughs> about the money right. initially. Yeah. But maybe you go and you volunteer at some place. And so you have to speak of, you know, maybe it's volunteering about some story or something that you've done and it's going to be free for a while, but what are you going to do during that time? Maybe you have a friend stand in the back and videotape it so you can listen and watch, and then you're going to find your voice and you're going to slowly get better and find something that you're really passionate about. You're going to start to get feedback from people who have heard you speak. And so, and, and you may find something you're really passionate about because I think you have to speak about a topic you're passionate about, or the audience will know it a mile away. And so I'd say just start speaking and worry about the money later. And even if you're only charging a little bit and you're looking to charge more because you want to make it a full-time job, you've got to lean into practice and getting better and getting better and getting better. And then all of a sudden when you say, oh, it's $2,500 or it's $5,000 or it's $7,000 or $10,000 or $15,000, whatever the number is, people won't blink. But if you want to go, I'm going to get into the speaking business and my rate's $10,000, And, you know, let's just say they say yes, and you're not good. Right. Now you have a different problem, right? The problem is that now people remember that, or they won't book you again, or they'll say, oh, I saw them one time. And even though it was your first time, and they don't know any of that context, they might not book you. So, you know, I'd say that this is a profession, in my opinion, anyway, that this is a crawl, walk, run. And I'd say even against the giants, you know, I get the fortune of being on stage with some of the best of the best, 
is I still think I'm in the walking stage. <laughs> you know, there are, right. you know, and, and there's lots to be learned. So at the end of the day, I'd say, just go out there and do it and volunteer to do it and do it at your, you know, your kid's school or do it at the office or do it, you know, for let's say training, like, okay, I'm going to be the floor monitor for emergency evacuation. And I have to tell everybody what they need to do. You just have to practice speaking in front of people and learning your voice. I think that's excellent advice. One of the things that I kind of mess with people, if I'm speaking, I'll ask the audience, how many people here are public speakers? And I usually get about half the audience and oftentimes it's a lot less. And then I say, okay, let me ask another question. How many of you have spoken in public today? And I won't stop until every single person raises their hand. And there's sometimes people that maybe are checked out and I'll say you, yeah, you. And they'll be like, what? And then everybody laughs. I'm like, there, you said it. I heard you. (laughs) It's, I think part of the process is just like, you know, going through the motions. And I think a lot of people have this practice that they are speaking. They're just not clocking it as speaking, right? Talking with friends, talking at dinner, talking with your uh, coworkers, telling stories. These are all foundational ways to practice speaking. You don't just have to be up on stage. And I, I think that's empowering because, you know, we have to communicate to get everything in life. So you might as well notch it up to practice and eventually get to a spot where you're passionate enough about selling a message to the world. Yeah, I I think uh, so, you know, I think I'm funny, but I would never think I'm a comedian. (laughs) And so just because you could do it with your friends and get them to laugh and everyone enjoys having you at a dinner party. Very different than being (laughs) in front of people delivering. Yeah, Yeah, especially stand up. That's probably like the highest level when it comes to the video game of, of like super difficult, extra, extra difficult. People don't understand how hard those individuals work to just get the right thing at the right time. Yeah, and so I, I agree. We all have to sort of speak in front of people and communicate, et cetera. But, you know, storytelling is about, you know, the art of creating a movement to get somebody to do something different or think differently about whatever topic it is you're talking about. And that takes some practice. Yeah, and that's the golden nugget. That's what we're going to hide in a treasure chest. So for everybody listening, Tiffany, what an amazing, fun time, real-time story. We know that you came from an island and you've traveled all around the big island of the world, throwing throwing those wooden balls down the gangway to try to hit 100, but not worrying about it because you've hit enough 60s, 70s, 80s that you are crushing it. And I know you will continue to. So I encourage everybody to follow you on Twitter and connect and see you live and all that stuff. Where is the best place for somebody to find you if they had one arrow to shoot online? Uh, Twitter is great because I'm fairly active like you are, uh, or LinkedIn. But, you know, it would be really awesome if they decided to subscribe. I've got a new podcast up on iTunes called What's Next with Tiffany Bova. I had some great guests so far, and, and it would be just awesome to to have them join me. And where do they find it? Like whatsnext.com? I feel uh, like that could be dicey. Yeah, it could be, <laughs> could be dicey, yes. So What's Next with Tiffany Bova on iTunes. Okay, sweet. Well, ladies and gentlemen... I know what's up next for you. It's subscribing to Tiffany's podcast. That's where I'm going right now. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Ryan Fulland, also known as DJ Ginger MC. Tiffany, we are out as soon as you say goodbye. Mahalo nui loa. Yay. (laughs) All right. Adios, everybody. We'll see you around.